0: Page 805, Psalm 57. We'll pray this responsively to begin our time together this morning. We're, um, this is one of the psalms we covered this summer, and so just want to keep these words before you, um, even into the fall. I'll pray the portion that is in plain print, and you all respond with the part that it's in bold. Psalm 57. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me, for in you my soul takes refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings until the disaster has passed. I cry out to God, Most High, to God, who fulfills his purpose for me. He sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me. God sends his love and his faithfulness. I am am in the midst of lions, I lie among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet, I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Amen. Heavenly Father, this morning, indeed, we come to awaken the dawn. We come to begin the day with your praises, and particularly this day, the Lord's Day, that you've set apart for that purpose. Father, today we bear witness and testimony um, to your love, to its greatness, how it indeed reaches to the heavens, how your faithfulness um, goes to the skies. Um, how your love and mercy are without beginning or end. And it's within the context of that love, Father, that we um, gather this morning and we ask that you would prepare our hearts for worship um, in a little bit. And we pray that you would be with us now um, as we study um, your word and your Son and and reflect together on his character and person and um, the consequence of all those things for us um, as those who have been united to him. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Good morning. It's good to see all of you. You should have a handout um, by this point. And before we dive into new material today, though, any um, things to discuss from last week? We talked about sanctification um, in Sunday school, or we also talked about Hebrews 13.1, let brotherly love continue in our sermon last Sunday. Any questions or comments or things to follow up on on those subjects before we Move forward. Anything? Very good. Well, let's get started this morning. We're going to cover the eighth statement today in the Human Sexuality Report. Um, The statement is actually on the back of your page today. Um, um, It's on a a topic called impeccability. Um, But before we go into the statement itself, I wanted to give us some context and and, um, teaching on that Subject, um, I think the statement's very well put, and we'll, you know, hopefully everything will flow together in that way. Um, so, what is impeccability when we use it in this kind of theological context? Um, it's kind of a um, fairly um, esoteric theological word and concept. It's not something that is often discussed or um, taught um, explicitly, at least. Um, But I think it's an important one. I think it's an important topic for us to get into um, today and think through. Um, Essentially, impeccability, I mean, it's related to the way we use the word impeccable um, in just common language. Um, We say someone's impeccable, we mean they're without flaw, right? But we don't mean that literally. Um, There's no one who is impeccable in that way. Um, But we do want to use that word when we speak of our Lord Um, Jesus Christ, and particularly the way that word um, Christ's impeccability, what it has come to mean in theological discourse um, in the Christian church through the ages, uh, means that um, it's the doctrine that Christ was morally incapable of sinning. Um, So the impeccability of Christ, essentially put, uh, means that Christ could not have sinned um, in his um, earthly life, um, that it was... um, in some sense, impossible for him to have sinned. Um, And and I'll explain more what we mean by that and what we don't mean by that. But that essentially is what the doctrine of impeccability is. Um, That is, it it was not possible for Christ to sin because of his divine and holy nature. Now, you might be thinking, well, what difference does it make, right? Um, Whether Christ could sin or not. He did not sin, Um, and um, thanks be to God. And he offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross and, and as a sinless and innocent and holy man and died for our sins. So, so isn't this a case of theologians you know, arguing about the number of angels on a pen, that kind of thing? Um, um, whether or not it's possible Christ could have sinned. We all know he didn't sin, so what difference does it make? I want to argue that it actually makes a pretty big difference. And um, this is an important topic um, for us to think about. It may not be something you've ever thought about before. Um, But I think it's worth um, a little bit of time and attention this morning. Um, So John Frame explains what we mean by impeccability in these ways. John Frame is an American theologian um, of the late 20th and early 21st century, Um, still living. He says, could Jesus sin? Perhaps the best short answer is that yes, he was physically and mentally capable of sinning, but no. No he was morally incapable of it, incapable of it, because he was perfectly holy. And I think that's a good distinction to make, the one that Frame makes here, and we're not saying that Jesus, as he lived his life on earth, there was a sort of, you know, force field around him that prevented him from, um, you know, he couldn't strike someone in anger um, and sin in that way, because, you know, his hand would have stopped um, in midair, because there was some kind of, like, divine force field thing that he couldn't split that, you know, um, that, the oxygen that was there. Um, that's, that's not what we're saying. Um, um, what we're saying is that because of the moral constitution of who Jesus Christ um, was and is as the divine Son of God, um, it was incapable of him to sin, um, or I'm sorry, it was impossible for him to sin, he was incapable of sinning in the same way that it is impossible for God to sin. Um, God um, cannot sin. Um, He is incapable of it because it is alien to his nature. It is outside of who he is. Um, The scripture teaches this on a number of occasions. Um, um, You think about um, James 1, where it talks about the father being the father of lights. With him, there's no shadow or turning or change. Um, All good things come from him because he's the source of all goodness. You think about Hebrews 6, where it talks about it being impossible for God to lie, and that's what we can trust um, his promises, um, the apostle says, um, it is, it's not only that God doesn't lie, it's that it's impossible for him to do so. It's alien um, to his character. And so when you begin to think about the impeccability of Christ, um, it really has to do with what you believe regarding his divine nature um, to the extent that he was the God-man, um, that he was uh, and remained God even as he um, became flesh, became incarnate, um, and like us in that way. Um, um, W.G.T. Shad, who is a 19th century reform theologian, he expresses impeccability this way. I think this is a helpful definition to think about. He says, Christ was not only able to overcome temptation, and that's something where very easily comes to our minds, Christ was not only able to overcome temptation, he was also unable to be overcome by temptation. Um, so he could not be overcome by temptation himself. He wasn't capable of it. It's not only that he succeeded in overcoming temptation historically, which, of course, we confess and believe, um, he was incapable of it being any other way. Um, he could not be overcome by temptation. So what's attractive about the the, uh, you know, the other side, so to speak? And this has been, a, to some extent, a theologically debated issue. Um, it, it certainly has connections with Christological debates earlier in the church's history, um, as we try to work through in the church what it meant that Christ was both God and man at the same time. Um, uh, but even today, if you read um, more modern theology, there is this um, increasing emphasis. that the, the impeccability of Christ, I think it's fair to say, is no longer a universally held doctrine within the Christian church. Um, there are corners of the church um, who have wrestled with this and have even said, no, we, we reject um, the impeccability of Christ. Um, we don't necessarily reject his sinless life and his perfection, um, but we would, we would want to you know, push back against the idea that he could not have sinned. He could have if he had wanted to, but he chose not to. Um, and so this is not a, even Charles Hodge in the 19th century, um, who's a wonderful, solid Orthodox um, Reformed theologian, wrestled with this um, topic um, about the impeccability of Christ and so I think it's worth um, wrestle with it in that he questioned it Um, I I think it's so it's worth considering why that might be why might it be attractive theologically um, for us to consider um, a Christ who is capable of sin yeah Jeremy
1: Jesus that, have that exact thing that jesus was an, a great great man but,
0: but not god and, and the whole yeah.
1: premise of that story is that this person is like us and that they can and are able to
0: sin but did not do. It. right that's right and so that that's yeah so Jeremy's making the point if you didn't hear that there's a lot of christian cults and heresies and even just other world religions that have this idea of, of a kind of transcendent man that that is born and lives a really morally good and faithful life and then sort of transcends his humanity in some way um, because of the moral quality of who he is. And And that's right. And that's really part of why this doctrine is so important. Part of why we want to um, push against it is because of that error, um, because we don't want to think about Jesus Christ that way. Yeah, Tama. Tama. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, that's a view that some people have, sure. I mean, it's a heretical view, but yes. Um, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, so Tam is pointing out the view that sometimes there's this idea that um, Jesus became God or was uh, it's sometimes called adoptionism, the idea that he was adopted by the Father um, as his son um, in the ba- his baptism and then was set apart in that way. But there's this idea that he... He had to attain that. He had to live a certain kind of quality of life in order to become the Son of God. Um, yeah, that's right. So another another Christological heresy. And I would I would I do think impeccability is an important enough doctrine I w- that we could use the word heresy around it. I think it's significant enough in that way. Um, maybe not a damnable heresy, but a heresy um, still. Um, so what what is attractive about a peccable Christ, that it is a Christ that is capable of sinning? And um, perhaps empathy, right? Perhaps we intuitively desire a Savior that is like us in every way, um, uh, bar none, um, is like us in every way. And, and certainly, um, when you read the Gospels um, and you read the New Testament, one of the emphasis, emphases of those documents is, that Jesus was like us, um, that he hungered, he thirsted, he slept, um, he grew tired, um, he um, suffered in every way like us. As the um, writer to the Hebrews says, he's tempted as we were, um, yeah, as we are, um, yet without, in every respect, yet without sin, um, the writer to the Hebrews says. And so that's, that's not a bad um, impulse to want a Savior like us. Certainly the, the New Testament encourages us and teaches us to think that way. Um, but if you read the New Testament, the Gospels particularly, but also um, the epistles, what is I think you're struck by if you read them um, honestly um, and openly is how this Jesus is not he's also different than us right um, The Jesus that goes around in the Gospels, the quality of how he lives, um, the way that he interacts with humanity he's also there are fundamental there's a fundamental difference. He comes from the outside. Um, he, he's a, a different quality of person um, than we're used to. And that's important to hold on to as well. Um, and a peccable Christ may um, also be attractive to us because it, it may seem that a peccable Christ protects us against docetism. So docetism is another Christian heresy um, having to do with Christological matters. Um, and docetism is related to the word Latin word for to seem. Um, and the idea is that, um, that docetism means that Christ only seemed to be human, um, but was not fully human. Um, and, so, and certainly docetism is a heresy. We, we don't believe that Christ only seemed to be human, but that he actually fully was a human person. And the question is, um, is it therefore necessary for you to be capable of sin to be a fully human person, essentially, um, is what it comes down to. Um, So I think we can see some reasons why docetism or why a peccable Christ, a a Christ that's capable of sin, uh, might be attractive to us. Um, Let me let me. I'll read this next, and then we'll talk. We'll take questions. So, but what is the problem with a peccable Christ? Why is this doctrine so important? Why is it worth um, spilling, um, you know, ink over and really debating and working out? I think it's because we need a Savior who is fundamentally different than we are. Um, I think that's the fundamental reason why this doctrine is so important and why it is so linked not only to um, who Jesus is and of himself, but also to the kind of salvation that he offers um, to those who put their trust in him. We need a Savior um, who is holy in a way we are not. So he can make us holy like he is. Right? We, we don't need... Um, just a morally faithful person um, who was able to live a really, really good life, a perfect life even, um, and then can somehow be offered to God in that way. What we need is someone who is, who is holy in and of himself, who comes from the outside to redeem us um, from not only our sin, but our sin nature, um, to take away um, the possibility of sin as, um, as we will experience in the eschaton. Um, as the, the souls of the departed experience now. Um, they're made perfect in holiness. They're no longer capable of sinning um, because of the way they've been conformed um, to the image of Jesus. Um, a peccable Christ, and this relates to what Jeremy was saying, means that any human could have saved humanity if only he had lived a sinless life. Um, so if you If you begin to say it doesn't matter whether Christ could have sinned or not, um, uh, you have to work that out to its logical extension. And what you're saying essentially is, theoretically, it was possible for Abraham to have been um, the savior of humanity. If only he could have lived a morally perfect life. And we know he didn't. Um, He failed. Uh, Or or David. Or um, Moses. Or whomever. Um, Whatever person you might um, say had a shot at that. Now, of course, all of those um, uh, human beings failed to live a perfect life. But if if you don't believe in the impeccability of Christ, the necessity of him um, not being able to sin, um, then you leave yourself open to um, any human person could have been the savior of humanity if only they had achieved uh, moral perfection in their life. Um, And what I want to say, and I think what Christian theology wants to say, is we want salvation that's better than that, that's better than something that can just be provided by um, someone who lives under the curse, um, under... Um, sin that has a sin nature. Um, we want something that comes from the outside. Um, let me stop there. There's a long quote here from Bob Inc. I want to read. But any, any thoughts or questions or anything that you all want to think about? Is this a, maybe a new topic? Yeah, Donovan. Um, I had a conversation with, with once,
2: yeah, we never used the word Sure.
0: So, his, his perspective was that because he was now a believer, he was incapable of sin?
2: Yeah. Well, I don't know if incapable. He just didn't believe he was, was sinful anymore.
0: Okay. <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, you talk about, uh, you know, confession and all of that. Yeah. There wasn't anything to confess because he no longer sinned because he was like Christ. Right.
0: A danger in holding to the impeccability of Christ. Yeah. Um, I think, as I understand um, what you're expressing about that man's view, that essentially because he was now a believer, he was sinless. Um, I mean, I think there are lots of obvious problems with that, um, as I'm sure you agree. <laughs> um, but I don't know that I would lay that at the feet of the impeccability of Christ. I think that that's a, um, um, there's a kind of um, mis- misreading, really, of the entire scriptures. Um, if you were to come to that conclusion. Um yeah. Yeah, I'd I don't, I don't I I guess I wouldn't I wouldn't connect that directly to the impeccability of Christ personally. Yeah. Um Alison. I was just gonna say that was like a common view in Teotonia. I think because what is a, the moral perfectionism you know, well, I think of, the misinterpretation of the verse like believers will not continue in sin. First John, yeah, sure. That they if you're a Christian you don't sin. So any sin was very hidden. Right. Right. No, that's yeah, and that, and certainly, if you read First John, um, especially verses in First John by themselves, um, you can get that impression that that a Christian doesn't sin anymore. And this is part of why it's so important for good teaching to take place in the church, so that all of the scriptures are taught, and people don't just, you know, cling to one isolated verse here or there to build their whole theology. Um, yeah, um, sorry, Michael. And I'll come to you, James. sinless life have you seen a three-year-old right you know uh, that one that's the only way that that works i think yeah to be able to say that he 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 was completely without sin is to say that he couldn't possibly he came from the outside yeah that's right i appreciate that james did you have a question or comment
3: Sure. Um,
0: right. In, in contrast to the, the perspective that um, Donovan was. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. I, I think I'd, yeah, a true understanding of the impeccability of Christ would heighten our own awareness of our um, remaining sin nature and the ways that we continue to wrestle with our flesh in that way. Yes. Absolutely. Um, Eric, and then we'll come back. We'll come back to y'all. Yes, sir, Mr. Pyle.
4: Yes. Right. Christ, right.
3: Um, and then you have the whole like
4: uh, purgatory, like when, when souls die, mm-hmm. you still have to be. Um, you know, there still has to be some sanctification there. I right? this, this kind of. Mm-hmm.
0: without those other pseudo-mediators, yeah. Yeah, we rest with that tension, yeah. So Eric's making the point that in more Roman Catholic um, situations, um, there's a sense in which maybe we can't interact directly with Jesus because he's too unlike us, um, and so we, we need the intercession of saints who understand what it is to have a sinful nature and those kinds of things. Yeah, who, Jeremy? Yeah, well, what I would say to that, Jeremy, um, Jeremy's making the point about the temptation of Christ and the wilderness with Satan and how um, he overcame that. I would say that that Jesus certainly was tempted for the remainder of his life. I wouldn't want to back away from that view. The question is the source of the temptation. Where did the temptation come from? And we'll get into that um, in a few minutes. But the impeccability of Christ means that Um, the temptation that Jesus experienced always came from the outside as opposed from the inside. Um, and we would say that for those of us who are not Jesus, um, our, so all of us in this room, um, (laughs) we, we, um, our temptations don't only come from the outside. In fact, probably if we're honest, they mostly come from the inside, um you know, that that the, the desires that we have lead us into temptation, the sinful desires that we have. Um, and Jesus did not have, we would say, those sinful desires. And so any temptation he experienced would have come from outside of himself, either from Satan directly, as it does there in the gospel accounts early in his ministry, or I think you could, and I want to, if we have time, look at this passage. I think the the passage of... Um, where Jesus um, tells, or, or it's this, you know, really interesting passage, right? Where um, Peter says, you are the Christ. Remarkable moment. Um, he sees it. The Spirit gives him that wisdom and insight. And then Jesus begins to explain what it means for him to be the Messiah, the anointed one, that he must now go up to Jerusalem and suffer and die and be rejected by the chief priests and elders and then rise again. And, and what does Peter do? He begins to speak harshly to him and severely to him and says never you'll never do this put that away from you jesus that's not what it means and that's i mean that's a that's peter tempting christ right that's him tempting him to redefine what it means for him to be the son of god what it means for him to be the messiah and how does jesus respond to peter right get behind me Satan. right so there's a a moment in there where peter becomes almost a satanic kind of person in that moment he is in, the, in that he's tempting Jesus to sin, um which would be to take another route um towards his 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 throne. Yeah, Scott. So, so pre-fall Adam was peccable. Yes. So that's a great connection. Yep. If Jesus is the the last Adam, right. how can he not be peccable as well? Right. Um, what I would say is that um so, so Paul I'm mean, sorry, Paul. So Scott is making the point that um I think Paul, that's good. Yeah <laughs> Paul's a Paul's a good one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um so obviously Adam was not impeccable in the garden. Um he was capable of sin, as was Eve. Um because they did, um as were um you know, all those who um came after them. Um and even more than peccable, um they were um constrained to sin because of their sin nature. Um, so what I would say about that, um, Scott, is that, so, so you're asking if Jesus is the last Adam, then why is he not also peccable like Adam? I think part of the answer to that question is because we need, we don't want to just go back to the garden, basically. Um, the redemption that Jesus brings um, has to be greater um, than what Adam um, experienced. Um, we we want we we don't want to just have a return to eden um we want to go into the new um the new eden the new garden why did he not have to be is that but your estimate? Yeah, it's, it's not peccability an essential feature, feature of being an adam right i guess i would argue it's not i mean i think you to argue yeah it, it's yeah. Like, why? yeah 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 i don't know what I'm, I'm not sure how to fully answer your question in terms of why was it not Necessary for Christ to be peccable in order to be the second Adam, um, I think. It, I think partly this is a a Christian doctrine that we confess because we have to, um, and we have to fit its meaning into that. Do you know what I mean? Rather than the other way around. But I understand the point you're making. Um, I think. I, I mean, we could talk about. I mean, I, I certainly it's possible that maybe if Adam had not sinned, he would have been. You know, if he had passed the test and the temptation, maybe he would have matured into something that would have been impeccable. Do you know what I mean? I mean, this is all total pure speculation at this point. Um, but but I think certainly God did not intend ever to leave humanity in a position where it was always possible that there was going to be the fall. Yeah, and I'm not saying that I think that's the... the impeccability is an essential feature. Yeah, the, I know you, I'm you just don't. just asking the question. You're just... I know, you're playing devil. Uh, yeah, I yeah, get it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is is it true? Was Jesus truly tempted if we believe uh, yeah, that he, yeah. did, he did? If he did not have a, a, a sinful nature, is what well, you're asking? Or if, if, there's no, <laughs> if there's no possibility of him accepting it, and I, I like the way that frame separates out the different kinds of possibility, mm-hmm. where he says he's physically. Yeah. One, one, right, there's not there's not that essential desire for sin. Is it really temptation? Um, one um, professor or theologian I was reading this week made the point, which I thought was interesting. Um, he argued that actually because of Christ's um, lack of a sinful nature, um, because of his impeccability, his temptation was actually more um, um, dramatic because... For ourselves, we, we hardly know what it is like to actually be tempted by Satan because we can't even barely distinguish the temptations that Satan gives us from our own sinful desires and hearts. Um, and so there's, you know, it's, it's just all mixed up for us. And, we, we, and, and for, so the, this theologian was arguing, if we believe in the impeccability of Christ, that means that, that Satan comes in and Jesus has to bear the full brunt of it and of himself. Um, so to speak, um, because it's so alien, it's so different. Uh, he, basically, he was arguing that most of us don't even know when we're being tempted. Um, we're oblivious to it um, because it's just our nature, or at least our fallen nature um, um, in terms of what remains of the old man. Um, so, I, yes, I think we do have to say, to answer your question, I know you're, you're just pressing back, um, but I think we do have to say that Christ could be truly tempted um, and But we also have to say he was, we do have to make a distinction that he was not tempted exactly in the same way that we are. Um, and, and that verse in Hebrews, he was tempted in every respect, yet without sin, as we are without sin. Um, Christian theologians have taken that to mean not only did he not sin when he tempted, but that his sin was not, or his, sorry, his temptation was not, had, didn't have a source in sinful desires. Does that make sense? That was a different, it was a different kind of temptation in a sense. Um, different than Adam's temptation? Yes. I would say. Because Adam did not have a sin nature, but he fell into But he was peccable, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's a good question. I'm, I may have to think about that. I answered that quickly, but may have to think Maybe about that more. Internal versus external temptation? Like, basically, like simple desire, simple nature versus Satan. <coughs> mm hmm. That's the distinction, yeah. The distinction. Yeah. And in that case Adam's temptation
1: or the way that Adam tempted the way that Christ was
0: tempted by Satan mm-hmm. the same. Yeah, I I haven't thought deeply enough about that to so the question is was Christ's temptation the same as Adam since Adam didn't have a sinful nature at, originally in the garden like we do. But Adam was capable of sin and yeah. we're not. <laughs> um or i'm sorry and jesus jesus is not um adam was capable of sin <laughs> that's right y'all can y'all can fire me later um i don't i don't know if i want to answer come down on that question right immediately um uh, matt but it looks like jeff does so that's great the
2: spirit
0: yeah I don't know if I'd want to go there personally that's not my yeah that's yeah yeah I don't know if I want to I don't know that's a was interesting to think about but yeah all right let's let's move through here I appreciate I'm um, genuinely the feedback but I do wanna read um, just, I think this is a helpful quote from Hermann Bavink. Bavink was a 19th century, largely early 20th century theologian, Dutch theologian. Um, one of the most exciting things happening in reformed theology right now is that Hermann Bavink's entire works are being translated into English for the first time, at least exciting for people who speak English um, in the reformed world. Um, He wrote in Dutch, um, but the vast majority of his corpus was untranslated into English until the last um, maybe 20 years or so. Um, And that's been a remarkable gift to the church. There's still a lot more to do, but um, his Reformed Domatics four volumes are now in English, and I highly recommend them to you. Um, So this is a quotation from one of those volumes. Um, He says, I don't even know how to say this, uh, Theodore of Mopsustia. Um, Nestorius, and Theodore was one of the earliest Nestorians. Nestorianism is, is a heresy that says that Christ had two persons, a divine person and a human person, that somehow sort of overlapped, that he wasn't just one person with two natures. Um, so those people, and all who take their point of departure in the human nature of Christ, assume, Bavinck says, that through all kinds of struggle and temptation he perfected himself. Um, So he had to go through this period of struggle and temptation um, to become perfect. Um, Jesus, they say, was not positively holy. He did not bring with him the inability to sin. On the contrary, they said, such an innate holiness is impossible and without ethical value. Instead, Jesus was a human being who brought with him the possibility of sinning, but by moral exertion and struggle actually kept himself free from all sins developed himself ethically to the highest level and made himself worthy of union with God. This conception is rooted, however, in a failure to take account of the deity of Christ. It proceeds from the mistaken idea that there is no virtue other than that which is acquired by struggle, and it most achieves a factual historical sinlessness which is insufficient for Jesus as mediator. Um, Only the God-man can mediate between God and man, not a man who... Happens or is able somehow by his own effort to live a sinless life. Um, Bavink goes on to say, Scripture, however, prompts us to recognize in Christ not just an empirical sinlessness, so not just a sinlessness that we can observe um, in, in his record of his life, but a necessary sinlessness as well. He is the Son of God, the Logos, that is the Word who was in the beginning with God and himself God. He is one with the Father and always carries out his Father's will and work. For those who confess this of Christ, the possibility of him sinning and falling is unthinkable. He could no more sin or fall than God himself could sin or fall. For that reason, Christian theology maintained against Arians, so Arians were those who taught that Jesus was um, not truly God, um, but the first created being, and Pelagians, Pelagius taught that, um, that humanity was not um, corrupted by sin, but actually could live a morally perfect life if only they exercised their will with enough um, consistency. Um, and others that Christ, so for that reason Christian theology maintained against Arians, Pelagians, and others that Christ could not sin. Um, others who argued that Christ, and others, sorry, that Christ could not sin. For in that case, either God himself would have to be able to sin, which is blasphemy, or the union between the divine and human nature is considered breakable and in fact denied. So, so either, Bavink is saying, you have to believe that God is capable of sin if you think Jesus is capable of sin, or you have to say that somehow in his um, divine and human natures um, that existed in one person, there was some kind of rupture between those two. Um, that, that he was not fully, he could not be fully divine if he was capable of sin, essentially, um, because of the way in which we believe in his um, one person, there are both the divine and human nature, which are not mixed together, um, but actually joined, fused together, united to one another um, inseparably. Um, and so we, we have to, Bob Inc is arguing, um, in order to, to stay away from the shoals of heresy, essentially, Um, confess a Christ who is impeccable. And I I think Hebrews 7 is a really interesting, this is a verse I've meditated on a lot um, as we've gone through Hebrews, especially that latter half, it seems to encapsulate a lot of, I mean, you think about Hebrews, really the first few chapters is really emphasizing, just speaking very broadly here, but um, Jesus is, how Jesus is like us, Right? Um, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4 are places where you hear about Jesus partaking of our flesh and blood and becoming like us in every way. Um, those are those, those um, passages about him being tempted as we are, him being able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he suffered. Um, he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. Um, but then the latter part of Hebrews is all about how Christ is not like us. And actually, we don't want him to be like us. Uh, because if he was simply a, a priest after the order of Levi... Um, we would be in a lot of trouble. Um, and, and, and I think we have to hold both of those things in tension um, rather than collapse one or the other. Um, Jesus, we have to say that Jesus is both like us and not like us and and be thankful for both. Um, I think that's the, one of the primary arguments that Hebrews is making. And Hebrews sums that up um, in verse se- chapter 7:26, 26, where he says, For it was indeed fitting, right, it was appropriate, it was... Necessary that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. So the emphasis there is not that, that Jesus became this, but that he is this, that he was this, um, that we always needed this kind of high priest and um, someone who would come from the outside um, to deliver us that was fundamentally separated from us, who um, was holy and innocent and unstained in that way. And I think this really is, as you think about this doctrine, this, what you, regardless of all the sort of abstract you know, theological questions we could wrestle with, the importance of this doctrine is that it means that your salvation, you're not just being saved to become the best version of who you might be, right? Um, you're actually being made holy like God, um, like God, you are being you're you're receiving a holiness that, that is totally alien to yourself, um, and is being given to you as a gift because it's the only way you could ever receive it. Um, you couldn't, you know, you could live a million lifetimes, right, um, and never achieve the kind of holiness that Jesus offers you, um, even if somehow you, through your own will. You know, I, I don't know how you would do this, given what we know about humanity, but let's just say theoretically you could. Um, you could live a life of moral perfection, right? That you could never sin, um, even from your earliest days. Um, what, what I'm saying, what Christian doctrine is saying, is that the salvation, the holiness, um, the purity, the innocence that you have in Christ is greater than that. Does that make sense? It's even better than if somehow you had done what you can't do anyway. Um, but what you have in Christ is something far better than that, um, because it is the holiness of God, um, of the divine. Um, it is not a, it is not a fundamentally human holiness. Um, it is, um, it is purely, you're made like God. That's that's the, the promise of the New Testament in that way. That you're made holy like Christ is holy, and Christ is holy um, as God is holy. Yeah, James.
3: sin because mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, that's so common to our experience right. so it, being tempted in every way we are yet without sin like, speaks to the alienness of Christ mm-hmm. um, every bit as much as it speaks to his likeness right
0: to us. right yeah. yes absolutely yeah Donna
3: but he just did it, they are doing that
0: because they're not thinking that, they're not thinking of all the complete consequences of those. Right, absolutely. And I think that even, you know, there are there there are preachers out there that would probably
3: say something. Absolutely. Absolutely there are. Because they have not thought that through to his complete end. Right. So I'm glad that we're having this discussion because it really brings out the necessity of thinking those things out to their complete end, right. what are the
0: implications of those things? Yes. I would never want to be in a position to
3: say that he was not fully God because
0: I believe that. Right. Does that make sense? It absolutely does. Yeah, so Donna's saying this is why we do this. This is why, and I'm so grateful to have so many of you be here this morning for this discussion, and I think you're right, Donna, that this is the kind of thing that maybe seems like, well, who really cares, right, um, um, if you don't think about it, right? Right. Um, but then you begin to really ponder, and this is the value of theological education for all believers: is that it, it really does matter. It really makes a difference in terms of the way we live our life, the way we think about God. Um, theology is never um, detached from how we live and how we, the kind of faith that we have. So I really appreciate that. I think that's right on. That's what we're trying to do here. Um, yeah, I think Eric had his hand up, and then Daniel. I'll continue to Jeremy. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I think that's right, Eric. And I think that this does relate to the previous statement we looked at last week on sanctification in that sense because um a holy um a Christ that's holy in the way that we're describing him is able to make us holy like himself. Um and we I think it means that we can really grow in sanctification and holiness and obedience if this kind of, um, if this is the God who has saved us, and this is the God whose spirit dwells within us, then he can make us like himself. It's not simply a, you know, a a human effort that we have to sort of emulate somehow, um, but it's actually coming from the outside. Um, Daniel, do you have a question or thought?
2: Thing, um, without thinking through the theology of it. Yeah. This is the first time I've heard a logical connection between when Christ was fully God from the beginning. Yep. He added to himself humanity. Therefore, being fully God, he wouldn't be able to, to be tempted to yep. sin from, from the inside. Right. Anyways, but there is a view out there that Philippians 2, Paul was talking about Christ giving up some of his deity. Mm-hmm. And then Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So
2: what is, what
0: is yeah that really absolutely that that right that? yeah so um daniel's asking about this uh, a, a teaching that sometimes held uh, in philippines Stewart where it says that um christ um emptied himself um becoming man these kinds of things um yeah i would just say simply daniel that that's 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 a heresy that's always been around in the church um, this idea that somehow Christ was divine and then somehow surrendered and asked part of that divinity or all of that divinity in order to become man and um, and it's a it's an error that the te- the church has rejected over the centuries um, in a firm way that's a lot of what the Nicene Creed is about and those councils of the church and so we we would not want to say that. Um, and, and I think, you know, there are all sorts of proof texts you could go to in the New Testament to talk about Jesus, you know, I mean, John 1, of course, being a, a really prominent one, or Colossians 1, where it talks about him being the fullness of deity um, dwelt in him. Um, that that Jesus, in order for him to become man, did not mean that he gave up in any way his, his divine nature, um, his divinity. Um, it... it it does mean that he became man, and we—that's there's some elements of mystery there in terms of what does it mean to be fully God and yet dependent on food um, in a genuine way to live, right? I mean, obviously Christ, um, and this is a whole another debate. We don't have time to go into today, but you know, one of—I think—a less important but interesting debate is: Could Christ have died? Like, if he had fallen off a cliff, could he have? You know, like if he had stepped off a cliff, could he have died, or could he only have died on the cross um, as he chose to die in that way? Um, um, I'm not even sure where I was going with that, but um, except that it's an interesting—it's an interesting thing. Um, so the, the mystery, right? The mystery of the incarnation. What does it mean that he became man um, like us in every way? Um, and and I, there there are aspects of mystery there. Um, but we certainly always we certainly don't want to say in any way that he surrendered or gave up his divinity in order to become man yeah um what i think that passage is largely talking about is um not so much um that the 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 humility of christ there in my view is not so much the incarnation itself as it is um, the death on the cross—that um, was a particular kind of um, humiliation and a kind of um, emptying of his rights, of his prerogatives—that um, he would he would die in such a way. I think is what I think that's what Paul is saying. I mean, remember, Paul—the whole argument there. Paul is saying, have this kind of attitude among yourselves as you think about how you deal with one another, and then he uses Jesus as an example for how we should think about one another and how we should think about ourselves. Um, So that's what I would say there. Um, I think that passage actually is, I think the incarnation side of things in Philippians 2 is overemphasized and the the crucifixion aspect of it is not emphasized enough. I think that's the primary point Paul's making there. Um, We have to wrap up. Um, I I just want to read this statement so that you hear it um, before we move on next week to the new... Um, statement. So this is the statement from the study committee in the back of your page. We affirm the impeccability of Christ. The incarnate Son of God neither sinned in thought, word, deed, or desire, nor had the possibility of sinning. Christ experienced temptation passively. It doesn't mean he was passive in the face of temptation, but that he experienced it passively. In the form of trials and the devil's entreaties, not actively in the form of disordered desires. So most of our, or yeah, probably most of our temptation comes from our disordered, fallen, sinful desires. But Christ did not experience temptation in that way. Christ had only the suffering part of temptation where we also have the sinning part. Um, and I think that's an important distinction here, I mean, it relates to your question, Scott, about if Christ wasn't, isn't tempted like us, did he really, is he really like us? And I would say he is in that... Um, that so much of the suffering we experience in temptation is because of us, right? Um, It's not as though that's put on us. We create those things for ourselves. Um, So Jesus experienced, just as we do, the same kind of temptation from Satan as we do. Um, The difference would be um, the quality and nature of his quality and nature versus ours. Christ had no inward disposition or inclination to the least evil, being perfect in all graces and all their operations at all times. Nevertheless, and here, this, there is mystery here. We have to confess both things at once. Christ endured from without, so coming outside, real soul-wrenching temptations which qualified him to be our sympathetic high priest. Um, and it's interesting that in the logic of Hebrews, Hebrews, um, Jesus' humanity, um, the the main thing that he's talking about there is Jesus being able to sympathize with us. And and I think that's true. I think Jesus can sympathize with us even though he does not have a sinful nature. Um, Christ assumed a human nature that was susceptible to suffering and death. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Um, So that's the state. I don't have time to do this, but we could have looked at the temptations of Jesus and the Gospels. Let's stand and pray, friends. Very thankful for this discussion. Thank you for engagement. Thank you for your attendance this morning. Um, I think this is profitable time. Father, we do give you thanks for your Word. We thank you for your Son, that he indeed um, is um, such a high priest, that he is holy and innocent and and, um, unstained, um, that he is separated from sinners, Father, and that he is exalted above the heavens um, even now as our high priest, as our mediator, Um, as the one to whom we are united, the one um, from whom we derive all of our holiness, Father, in this life and in the next. Um, Give us this um, deep hope of salvation. Help us to continue to meditate on the quality of the person and the majesty of Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen.